I am so glad you could join us. I'm your host, Mo Gaudat. This podcast is nothing more than a conversation between two good friends sharing inspiring life stories and perhaps some nuggets of wisdom along the way. This is your invitation to slow down with us. Welcome to Slow Mo. Welcome back. It's gonna take me a bit of time to introduce my guest for today. So uh, you may have enjoyed my, our conversation back in November 2020. Bruce Daisley was my guest here on Slow Mo, where uh, we spoke about the joy of work, how we can include happiness in our workplace. Uh, it was episode number 59, if you'd like to go back and listen to it. He used to be the head of YouTube in the UK for four years before he became the president of Twitter in Europe, which he was for 12 years. And then he decided to shift his career to focus on creating work environments that are joyful, not only productive. His first book, The Joy of Work, has been uh, quite a success. It's been a Sunday Times number one bestseller uh, in spring 2019. The Financial Times made it the book of the month and it was shortlisted for CMI Management Book of the Year. During lockdown, he had an Audible original, uh, No Office Required, which was in the top 10 audiobooks on its release date, January 2021. And he keeps writing and his book that we're going to discuss today is about resilience, driven by what I believe is a very personal uh, approach to the topic, a very personal story, if you want. It's called Fortitude, and uh, it is really, as Bruce always does, a less harsh take that brings a bit of joy, a bit of community, a bit of understanding of what it is that we actually need to find resilience and fortitude. I'm scrolling through my phone because there is so much and I don't want to forget it. In his business career, he was awarded the greatest individual contribution to new media uh, award by uh, Media Age. He's been rated as the top leader in the UK sector by Campaign Magazine. In survey of CEOs and MDs in 2020, he was uh, named the fantasy hire, which is one of the leaders that is most desired to be hired in an organization, which other candidates were, or other winners of that award before him were Jeff Bezos and Elon Musk. I don't think that it's just his knowledge uh, that really brings a difference to uh, the workplace. I think it's his commitment to understanding that there are certain human qualities that are not just part of capitalism and working hard and pushing hard that makes you successful. And so today we're going to talk about a topic that I believe is incredibly timely because we're going through tough times, all of us. And I think there is nothing that we need more than fortitude. So Bruce Daisley, I hope you'll enjoy our conversation, Bruce. Thank you so much for joining me one more time and for getting lost on the way to get here and for all of the 
attempts that we've put in to make this a reality. I've been looking forward to this for quite a bit of time. Uh, great to catch up with you again. Thank you. The last time I saw you, I, I stumbled into you in the Middle East on a bus. Exactly. So, uh, yeah. So. The, the last time we met, literally, I was sitting in uh, on a bus in Saudi Arabia. Yeah. I was moving uh, to an event, which, which was actually a good event. We were talking about digital well-being and the idea of removing the digital stresses from our life. And... You just show up. Yeah. There so, you go. And nice you, to see you in London. Yeah. Thank you so much. Uh, how long has been has Fortitude been out? When was it? Uh, it's been out a month. So I was delighted that it opened as a Sunday Times bestseller. It's been out uh, about a month as we record this now. So um, d- delighted that it's sort of kicked off and got a good response. It always will. And it's been, uh, it's it's released internationally as well. Yeah. It's just yeah. started the international while out. Yeah. Very good. So I have to ask you, Bruce, It's it's. Uh, did you plan it that way? I mean, there is nothing we need more at our life today, more than a bit of resilience. I think times are becoming very difficult. But uh, my concern is that because that demand is so high, um, that snake oil salespeople have, have filled the gap. And so, you know, <laughs> I was to, going to ask to, to my, my feeling really strongly is that because there's such a demand for resilience, that what we're finding is that a lot of people are stepping up and saying, I've got the answer. I've got resilience yes. for you. Here's resilience in a bottle. Here's resilience in a webinar. Mm-hmm. And in truth, I think the way that we talk about resilience is, is something of a toxic myth. Mm-hmm. The idea effectively that in a world that's become obsessed with individuals and individualization, that the idea that society's atomized into loads of individuals, each responsible for themselves and nothing else, Mm -hmm. in a society where we sort of diminish the idea of even society existing. Um, A version of resilience that comes along that tries to solve that on an individualistic level doesn't work. And so we find ourselves in this situation. I'll give you specific examples. Um, you know, interventions that are staged in schools, interventions that are staged in business. When you look into the research of those interventions, and quite often there's not research into those interventions, but when it is, when it is published, um, the evidence for them is pretty shaky, actually. You know, the, the one of the biggest interventions was created by big, iconic, lauded American psychologist. And yet when his methodology has been put into schools and tried to be replicated sort of in psychology, these big attempts to to reproduce other people's results. And this replication doesn't work. And so I think, you know, it gives you a pointer that in this moment, a lot of people have got this demand for resilience, got this desire for us to be stronger, more hardy, more robust. And unfortunately, solutions have crept in that aren't necessarily providing true solutions to it. So that's my concern, really. That's the perspective I come from. I agree with that fully, actually. My planned first question for our conversation was going to be that. There is so much resilience out there. Why would we, do we need another book? But obviously, I think all of the books that we have on resilience out there are so much focused on the individual, but are not even individualized. So what you really get is, all right, so... The world is falling apart, things are collapsing, and you will have to stand on your own and just act as we tell you, regardless of what your background is, regardless of where you come from, what your capabilities are, what your weaknesses are. And if you follow this method, you'll be fine alone. This is almost the opposite of what you say, right? When we met in Saudi, you were saying that one of the reasons that you decided to write Fortitude or that really triggered, uh, you know, the acceleration of Fortitude was the explosion in Beirut. Mm. 
which I don't know if everyone knows about this from our listeners, but it was a fertilizer factory that exploded to a, a scale that is really comparable to a very, very large bomb and sort of shaken the city completely, mm. you know, in a society that was already a little unstable because of the political situation and so on. I can't really imagine a single person on their own being able to find resilience in that environment. Yes, yeah, so the, the reason why that event really triggered my feeling about this is that, so, you know, like you say, it's the third biggest explosion in any city ever. And the first two are pretty easy to guess, but it's the f- biggest explosion in peacetime, um, decimated the city. And the reason why it really, it really triggered me is that the BBC's coverage the next day said, if we know anything, the Lebanese people are resilient. The New York Times said, anyone who knows Lebanon will know this, Lebanese people are resilient. And yet the people on the ground in Beirut, the people in Lebanon were not feeling resilient. In fact, everyone was pretty much united in saying we're on our knees. The world has to help us now. Surely the world will help us now. And so it was this really interesting thing. Now, there's an interesting parallel with that because all of the people generally who are being sent on resilience courses by their workplaces, people who are being sent on resilience courses by their schools might say, Surely, like the people in Beirut, the fact that I'm on my knees is reason for you to take a closer look at my situation mm-hmm. rather than to look at me down here on the floor and say, go do it on your go, own. Go yeah. be resilient. Yeah. And, you know, that was what really struck me. I did an event last week mm-hmm. and we were, I was talking about resilience and someone in the crowd said, so hang on, surely the whole point of resilience is that my work that's creating burnout that's got people off signed off with sickness and depression surely the issue is that workplace not the fact that we are not resilient and that's precisely it. the the situation is quite often resilience talk is it gives permission to toxic yeah. situations yeah you know I, I was really struck the um in, in the book I talk a lot about the resilience orthodoxy and these sort of two or three bits of leading academic work that fall into that not least growth mindset which is a big pretty much ubiquitous in schools ubiquitous in business but another part is grit which was created by a couple of leading psychologists but it's really got angela duckworth's name on it and when you look into the research behind grit so the idea of grit is that it was work conducted in in schools in it doesn't say specifically where but broadly It's almost certainly in Philadelphia. And the two leading researchers, Angela Duckworth and and another guy, Martin Seligman, talk about how it's conducted in a school that's got high socio-demographic mix. Mm -hmm. So presumably there's affluence and poverty. And Philadelphia is very much characterised by that. But if you look into the poverty of Philadelphia, it's the poorest city in the US. Uh, It's it's got a food poverty of about 40%, meaning 40% of the population of Philadelphia are hungry most days. Um, And you've got a situation where there's a methodology of measuring trauma, which is becoming increasingly accepted, called the Adult Childhood Experience Index. The average ACE score for Philadelphia is four which is a really high score. To put that in context, that's um, an A score of four is pretty uncommon and is very strongly associated with increases in addiction, increases in drug dependent crime. So 
It's a really bad situation. And yet the conclusion of the research of grit was that if you want to know why some kids do better than others, what determines it is how determined you are, how gritty you are. Mm. And so they sort of say it's an attitudinal thing. And what you miss with that, an A score of four, which is the average for Philadelphia, is associated with a 33 times increase in the uh, educational difficulties that someone will experience. So poverty, adverse experience is directly correlated with bad life outcomes. And yet their conclusion is the thing that determines how well you do in school is how hard you try. And it's just it's just such a fundamental misdirection that, you know, there's only one way to describe it. It's victim blaming. It's mm-hmm. blaming people who are who are suffering misfortune. It's sort of an, an alibi to keep abusing them. It's like, you know, you can toughen up and we will just load you more and more. I mean, very common in the workplace, for mm. example, to say you're going to just make it more difficult, but we're going to train you how to take it. Or in general, in tough situations, like in the situation in Lebanon, we, we love you Lebanese, by the way, amazing people. It's sort of saying, hey, by the way, now that you have this problem, hey, we really support you to go and toughen up. Well, precisely that, because you imagine the situation that most people find themselves in, like the Lebanese found themselves in that day. People come along and they say, you know, if you're resilient, you'll deal with this. And then if they don't deal with it, they come along afterwards and say, see, I I told you you we shouldn't shouldn't have supported them. Uh So we see this situation. Now, let's have a look. Let's let's go back to the workplace. You know, a lot of my work is about the intersection of work and our lives. And if we we think about... The workplace, an organisation might be presented with burnout, might be presented with workers saying that they can't cope. Now, the way that an organisation might seek to redress that is say, okay, well, let's have a look. Most people here have got 35 hours a week of meetings or 200 emails a day. Can we deal with that? But of course, that would require some reflection, some rewiring of the organisation. It's difficult. Mm. It's far easier to say, On Thursday lunchtime, there's going to be a resilience webinar, dial in, and it will help you deal with your problems. And effectively, that is victim blaming. You're not blaming the fire. You're blaming the fact that people can't cope with the fire. And uh, I think that's the challenge, really. So you take this on not from an individual point of view, if you don't mind me saying not from the Western point of view of like, okay, you're on your own. You're taking a very different approach to the topic. First of all, I I love how in your I get knocked down chapter, you speak so openly about all of the different varieties of events that knock us down Mm. and the abundance, the how prolific they are in everyday to day life, which is interesting because from one side, of course, it sort of calls to action that we need to do something about the problem. But it also, I have to say, is a bit shocking what our world has come to. Mm. How do you think the world is today when it comes to the need for resilience compared to any other time in history? The interesting thing, the stuff that you go through there, is sort of broadly categorised in a more full understanding of adverse childhood experience, you know, yeah. sort of categorising what goes wrong. The interesting thing is the the people I chat to, maybe 20 years ago, the way that people dealt with adverse childhood experience is that they would self-medicate. They would drink more, they would take more drugs, they would be hedonistic. And what I've observed in Gen Z kids is they're far more willing to 
intuit their emotions to respond to the way they're feeling mm-hmm. in a way that a previous generation hadn't i'm i'm inspired by it actually you know mm-hmm. young kids rather than them sort of drowning their problems out they're actually addressing them sort of owning them f- leaning into them and so i'm really inspired by that mm-hmm. the interesting thing about all of that work because I, d- I spend a lot of time looking at elite athletes because sometimes there's misdirection in the story of elite athletes but what you find is that in any study of that the more that an individual can understand their experiences the more that an individual can understand that other people share those traumas the more they can overcome them so you know the whole science of it and understanding all of that area feels grim it feels maudlin depressing but actually through that an understanding of that uh, an understanding of how when we can seek to revitalize our sense of identity it's quite an optimistic science i think there's a really inspiring guy a guy called jack shonkanoff who runs the harvard center for the developing child which is probably the world's leading expert on the study of trauma mm. and he says you know if all of this study tells us one thing it's that we are not predetermined to end up as a victim of our experiences but rather more understanding our experiences can be elevating for us yeah. so i think that's turning the, points you call yeah, it yeah yeah and so you know i think i spend a lot of time looking at this unique situation of elite athletes mm. largely because what you witness in elite athletes the one bit of research that really struck me is that there was a piece of work conducted by uk sports so these are this is an organisation that puts british athletes at the olympics It puts british athletes sometimes on podiums collecting gold medals and they conducted a piece of research to try and understand was there any fingerprint was there any trademark signature that the elite athletes the super elite athletes who won gold medals had and they found this remarkable thing that um, of all the super elite athletes they studied all of them had had a significant moment of childhood trauma interesting and of those who'd won bronze medals or maybe had achieved much less only a quarter of them had mm. now superficially you might go okay is this a resilient story is this a story of how someone turns tragedy into triumph but it's more complicated than that broadly what happens is their sport and their sporting excellence becomes an addiction for them mm. and you know normally when you see someone who has addictive behavior actually one of the most helpful things to understand is where's the hurt where's the where's the where's the, the trigger the where's trauma the thing that yeah, where did it start yeah that they're filling the the gap yeah. and normally what these super elite athletes had is they normally had a moment similar to that they had a problem mo farah in the uk is a big story because he was one of the most successful olympians this country's ever produced he he got two gold medals from two successive games and actually his biography seemed pretty straightforward he was just a, an immigrant who came to the uk what we've discovered in the last three or four months is actually he was a victim of human trafficking he was sold into child slavery and from the age of 8 9 10 he was brought into domestic service uh, for a household now generally what happens and I, i can't diagnose his situation but generally what happens when someone has experienced trauma is they experience it as shame they experience it as a shattering of their sense of identity in his case he had a super elite level of athletic ability mm-hmm. and so what you find in these cases is the focus on their athletic ability becomes an addictive obsession 
in this piece of work conducted by UK Sport, they say that these super elite athletes had an almost obsessively selfish level of focus. And you see some of these athletes, they talk about sport became my identity. Mm. Sport became my my focus. It was not my family escape, and sport. My, yeah. It was sport and sport and sport and sport. Uh-huh. And so through that, firstly, I, I sort of choose that example to disabuse some of the stories we sometimes end up with. We end up with a story. We open the biography of someone. We read it. It's like, okay, but they had hard things, but look how successful they are. What I wanted to show was it's more complicated than that. Firstly, we're looking at genuine survivor's bias. These are people who had a rare and unique level of talent that they were able to focus on. And secondly, we mustn't be distracted by this idea that tragedy leads to triumph. In rare, rare, rare instances it does. But for the vast majority of people, when someone gets knocked down, they stay down. And so I think, you know, I, I wanted to explore the complexities of that really. So I think that the bias to explain it in a in a simpler way is, is that, yes, among those who made it, the percentage of those who have been exposed to trauma of that nature is high. Yeah. But amongst all of us, the percentage of those that actually need to be informed on how to become more resilient is higher. So yeah. so 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 many of, of us will will live a long life with that trauma and it may not lead them to uh, to to that kind of focus that leads to success but rather lead them to weaknesses that gets them down really and keeps them down well that that ace methodology that adverse childhood experience methodology just to put in context Mm. and in its purest form it's a it's a series of 10 questions that you can answer yes or no to if you can answer yes to six of the questions and the questions include were you emotionally humiliated as a kid were you physically abused were you sexually abused did you live with someone who was addicted did you live with someone who went to jail? You know, they're sort of all about the household. If you've got a score of six and the average population of the, the US prison population, the average A score is six, then your life expectancy is 20 years lower. Wow. So these things not only have a direct correlation with life outcomes, witness you going to jail. The vast majority of addiction is explained by adverse childhood experience, but also it can substantially shorten your life. So these things are really material, I think. And, and, and they're quite widespread. I mean, some of my guests talk about being abused as a child. I hosted Karen Blumen from the Netherlands a few weeks ago, and she spoke about how she was being abused, sexually abused as a child. And an amazing episode, if you haven't heard it, uh, anyone, please go back and listen to it. And it is so common that there are stats that say that one of every four children are exposed to this. It seems to me that, that we're a bit far away from preventing those traumas right? You're saying that some of them will lead to excellence in sports or whatever will lead to people pushing really hard in life and going really far. And if if you don't mind me saying, you started with a difficult life. So you were not like one of those that went to MIT and then ended up in YouTube. You actually, you actually had to struggle in life to find your path through life. Would you share a little bit how that drove you? I mean, how how does a a less privileged childhood lead us to a more successful or at least a, a higher strive for, for excellence yeah. and, uh, and, and growth. On that methodology, I've got an A score of four. So, you know, superficially, what that would correlate with the doubling of my chance of getting heart disease, a doubling of my chance of getting cancer. So, you know, these things 
just as a benchmark, these things can have a direct impact. Most specifically, you know, mine was actually something that is relatively common living with someone who is an addict, effectively. And so that's, for a lot of people, that's not uncommon, you know. A lot of people live with those themes. And I think, clearly, it focuses your mind on, uh, in my case, focus my mind relentlessly on academic performance. Yeah. So it's like, you know, I've got to work harder at school. If I work harder at school, if I work harder at college... I can't escape this. Then, then you know, I won't let people down. So I think, you know, it's that sort of that attempt to try in your your own actions to make good for the things that are going wrong elsewhere in your life. I think, the, yeah. you know, that's that's probably what a lot of people who've gone through that, have lived with things like that, would recognise, I think. You seem to do that almost every single time. You, you go through an experience on a personal level. And then, I mean, the joy of work was basically sort of a cry out to say, I don't accept that work should be this way. Yeah, it, interestingly, well, firstly, you know, if, for me, there's something noble. We get distracted from it now. It's really interesting. Like if, you, if you're if you debating work and you, the way that work goes, this arising anti-work movement is like a, a lovely channel, a th- subreddit on, on Reddit called anti-work. And I think it's broadly because the terms that work, that a lot of people working on that right now just don't yeah. seem appealing. You know, you'll never own your own home yeah. if you don't start with some advantages, unless you're gifted with incredible good fortune. In the UK specifically, social mobility has never been lower. So if you're mm. born to a poor background, the chance of you escaping that, you know, the American dream, the, the British dream, yeah. the, 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 uh, the your chance of escaping that is, has never been lower. So for a lot of people, the reason why this sort of anti-work movement has sprung up and has gained some resonance, you know, if young TikTok is full of people being sceptical about the customer service job they're in, you know, sceptical about the things they're being asked to do. I think it's with good reason. That aside, you know, my interest was always, if you're going to spend 40 hours a week doing something, it's so much better to do it with a smile on your face. From someone who's worked in bars and restaurants or worked earlier in my career doing jobs, I knew that if I was enjoying the company of the people I was around, I was jo- if I was enjoying the trust of the people I work with, it just made it, it was, an, it was a noble thing. So yeah. it's a really interesting thing. I've reflected a lot, you know, this idea of writing a book about the joy of work almost sounds, you could easily construe it as Orwellian, you know, this, you will enjoy work, mm-hmm. you will go to work and demonstrate you're enjoying it. And it's not that. It was, you know, the book's quite democratic, that book is. It's because I went to one organisation and the receptionist had changed the culture. And I was like, well, tell me more. And they said, yeah, the receptionist here came in one day and said, this is the worst culture I've ever worked in. No one talks to each other. No one smiles at each other. No one seems to even like each other. And uh, the person she t- should hold this to said, oh, really, really? Nothing happened. So the receptionist went out the following week, bought some potato chips, bought some kettle chips, bought some Pringles, laid them out on paper plates at 4.30 on a Thursday afternoon and said, it's the best time of the week. It's crisp Thursday. And I invited on. Anyway, so everyone came along. What's this? They sort of 
They ate these snacks. They chatted to each other. Anyway, she did it again the next week. The third week, she was wearing a Pringles tube. (laughs) (laughs) The fourth week, someone had brought along a couple of bottles of things. Mm -hmm. And it became their ritual. And actually, if you want to understand good cultures, rituals are often a really big part of them. Mm -hmm. But it became their ritual. And actually, after a year, their chief exec changed. And everyone was like, are we going to tell the chief exec about Crisp Thursday? Because it was part of now, it was the family tradition. And initially, like he was scheduling meetings over Crisp Thursday and they, someone had to say to him, just so you know, we do this thing Thursday at 4.30. And it might seem silly, it might seem trivial, but it's the best thing for making people enjoy their jobs. And I loved that story. For me, it was a demonstration to any of us, if we're doing a job we hate, it was a demonstration that... We can all be the architects for making it better. Mm. And, you know, I've worked in places actually where the culture was good despite the bosses rather than because of the bosses. <laughs> Always. Right. <laughs> yes. And so as soon as you know that, you're like, okay, so I'm not waiting for the boss's permission to make it good around here. Yeah. I'm actually, I'm going to make things better. And, and so that was like my inspiration really. So, you know, I think a lot about, is writing a book about loving work, is it, is it a capitalist tool, you know? Is it something that, you know, it's in the interest of business to do that? And it was far from that. It was like, if we've all got to go to work, what are the ways that any of us can enjoy it a bit more? So that was that was my motivation for doing that. But all of my stuff really is about the intersection of work and our lives, I think. Yeah, and once again, you're saying, you always go back to that theme of community. And I, I love when you spoke about the, uh, did you call them the enablers? Basically the idea of control identity pillars, the three pillars yeah. of resilience in, in fortitude. So you said the three pillars are control, identity, and community. Now we can cover each of them quickly, but maybe not in that order, because now we're on that topic of community. Yeah. And I think the topic of Lebanon and Beirut, when, when the explosion happened, the Lebanese people in general are the most welcoming and, you know, joyful to be with. And I think that element of community really was what made a big difference. I could see it across the world. And I know thousands of Lebanese people, how they held together to Mm. find that resilience. Even if they were not in Beirut, every Lebanese person everywhere in the world has had his role or her role to play. So, So let's start from community when we talk about resilience and the role of community. The way I would express it is that if we spoke about resilience in a different way, I think people would get it and it wouldn't be this this elusive talent. I think if we spoke about resilience as the strength we give to each other, mm. I think that's effectively what the community part of resilience is. But if we understood that resilience is the strength we draw from each other, then I think it would fundamentally change our perspective. And then when anyone in post-COVID era is feeling isolated and they said, I'm not feeling very resilient, well, immediately our response would be, well, of course, because you're feeling isolated. So how can we make you feel more connected to other people? When we look at examples of resilience, the people in Ukraine, are they are they textbook example right now? They're showing bravery and fortitude that I don't think any of us would easily feel that we could access. If someone, if you and I were to open a letter now, summoning us to the, the front, I suspect most of us would, would have a moment where we were filled with self-doubt and, and anxiety. And yet we witnessed these people doing it in a sort of really mundane and you know routine way. Why? Because it's the strength they draw from each other. And if you look at any of these people, you know, people we see presented on the news and, and they seem to just have this 
this everyday confidence that the things they're doing are right and righteous. And it's because it's resilience is the strength we draw from each other. I'll, I'll give you another example of it. There's a really intriguing social scientist, a woman called Jean Twenge, who studies teenage well-being. And actually, I'll be candid with you. Mm-hmm. You know, for, for someone who I worked in YouTube, I worked in social media, you know, sometimes the things she says makes me reflect on how our relationship with phones affects our lives. Mm-hmm. And she says she studies teenage well-being. And I'll, the biggest reveal is, I can tell you, the article she wrote for the Atlantic magazine was called How Smartphones Destroyed a Generation. So she's unequivocal. Mm. Phones have had an impact. But really interesting, she did a piece of work right at the start of the pandemic. So pandemic, if it's over, then it's, it's, it was two and a half years in length and, and maybe it's not remotely over. But right at that first month, four weeks, Remember, for the first time, we never considered in our lifetime that we'd be given these shelter-at-home orders, and yet we found ourselves unable to go out. And she did her first piece of research there. And what she found was, amongst teenagers who were having an evening meal with their family every day, the resilience went up, the depression went down. Resilience is the strength we draw from each other. When we feel connected to other people, when we feel supported and understood, our resilience goes up. And so as soon as you see that, right, it's teenagers, people in Ukraine, but we see it in countless other examples. If someone goes and has a major heart operation, has an episode of depression, the biggest predictor of how well they will be in three years and five years is how many groups they report feeling part of. So one of those groups might be family. One of those groups might be the people they go cycling with every weekend. One of those groups might be, I've got a group of people, we go to the theatre regularly, right? And all of those things might seem incredibly trivial, but it's the biggest predictor of people's well-being. When they feel part of a group, when they feel supported by that group, that's the biggest predictor of their recovery. So resilience, as soon as you see it, okay, well, this is self-evident. All of these are exactly the same. It's the strength we draw from each other. And I think that sense of community is the thing we neglect. When someone is sent on a webinar by their work and they're told, well, here's the ways to be more resilient. And they sit there and they think, as people have told me, people told me when I was writing a book on resilience, they said, I got sent on a webinar of resilience. I said, any good? No, no, no. (laughs) I I don't feel any better. And worse, I'm scared to tell my boss I don't feel any better because she sent me on a a resilience course. So if I'm not feeling any better, is there something wrong with me? And, you know, I think that's the challenge. Someone said to me, never in the history of calming down has someone calmed down by being told to calm down. And, uh, (laughs) And never in the history of resilience has someone been more resilient by being told to be more resilient. And that's the challenge because we're sort of looking for this individualistic resilience. Oh, those athletes have got it. Why haven't I got it? It distracts us from the fact that resilience is the strength we get from each other. And as soon as you, I think as soon as you get that, the penny drops and you think, oh, we're right. Okay. Now I understand how I can feel like a, a better, stronger version of myself. But in, in your assessment, in your suggestion here, you're basically saying, ignore the problem, the challenge that you're facing is not the first answer, addressing it is not the first answer to resilience, actually finding a community, belonging to other groups, but, you know, having a support group around you, having people that you trust around you is something that you could focus on regardless 
of what challenges you face. Is that is that what you're saying? Yeah, but I don't want to diminish the fact that if you're in a toxic work environment, just feeling like you've got friends is not the solution. You know, the toxic work environment is the problem. If your city's been destroyed by a massive explosion, then just feeling connected to the people around you on its own is not going to be the solution. So I by no means want to diminish the challenges that people face. But I think when we are in that aftermath of, of being knocked down, understanding that the connection we have to other people is the thing that's most protective of us, I think is the thing to understand. So, you know, I don't want to diminish the fact if you're in a really bad situation, you need to identify that situation and and address it. Yeah. But yet there is value while you're doing that in seeking the support of people that you love. I think that that point needs to, needs to be made uh, very clear. There was a brilliant American social scientist who passed away a couple of years ago and a guy called Enrico Quarantelli. And his work, his life's work, he ended up working for the US government because he studied disasters. And in fact, he started off, his thesis was he wanted to study. So, so Sorry to laugh, but it's funny, you know, he ended up working for the American government because he knows disasters. So you, yeah. know, <laughs> you need to know, you know, they, they need someone who understands that. <laughs> well, and he was like, his job was... If there was an earthquake, if there was a, a flood, he would be the lone car going down the, the oh, motorway I know those, yeah. in, in the opposite direction. You know, everyone packed the roads. He was going in the opposite direction. And he said, he initially set about trying to discover what mass panic looked like. Mm-hmm. So, you know, you've had an earthquake. He wanted to capture the moment where what triggered the mass panic. And he kept going to repeated episodes and he wasn't seeing mass panic anywhere. He's like, okay, maybe I got, did I get here too late for the mass panic? Did I not look in the right places? He reached a point where he said, oh, the reason why I'm not seeing mass panic after natural disasters is there is no mass panic. Now, we watch Hollywood movies mm-hmm. where, you know, the building sets on fire and, and everyone you know, is the, screaming people and scream that, and yeah. run away. He said, we never see, you never see that happening. He said, what happens is, and you know, you witness this in the testimonies after 9-11, you witness this in natural disasters, earthquakes, floods. What happens is immediately... We're all together. Yeah. People, you know, you and I... You're a banker, I'm a, a road sweeper. And uh, while we might have had identities that held us apart before, now the, what we do, our jobs feel an irrelevance for this moment we're in. We've got this new identity, which is we've just experienced this together. Mm. And now what's our action going to be? And that sense of shared identity, that sense of effectively community, becomes incredibly protective. And it's so intriguing that, you know, it's, as soon as you witness all of these things laid side by side with each other, you go, oh yeah, none of these feels like a shock to me. You know, Mm -hmm. if you told me that after 9-11, there would be people leaving Manhattan and there there would be people fleeing the island, there would be members of the, the local community handing bottles of water to people as an act of kindness. And of course you go, of course, this is all natural. And yet... When we're imagining these situations, we presume something more selfish. We presume that everyone will be focused on themselves. And it's just not the case. So, you know, for me, you lie all of these things side by side. Those teenagers who benefited from having an evening meal, the people in Ukraine, people surviving natural disasters, and all of it just feels self-evident. Actually, as soon as you understand that, I think 
resilience is no longer this elusive thing. It becomes something where you say, okay, well, someone's feeling down. How can I make them feel more supported? Can we arrange a lunch with all of their friends? Can we arrange a moment where they maybe go out on holiday with a couple of, of best friends? You know, what can we do to make them feel supported by the people around them? Beautiful. On a, a separate note, uh, I'm working on a very similar challenge to the world that we are in, like Bruce is uh, talking about it from the point of view of resilience. I'm talking about it from the point of view of stress uh, with my uh, wonderful co-author, Alice Law. Let me interrupt this podcast for a minute to tell you about my latest initiative, unstressable.com. Unstressable is a members community based on my book with my co-author Alice Law, which will come out in 2023. Members of Unstressable get a library of training materials, daily tools to manage their stress, a free monthly webinar where you can ask your questions, guest expert talks about relevant topics, and the best of all, a members community where you can talk to other like-minded people to learn tips and tricks about how to manage your stress better. Being one of my beloved listeners on Slow-Mo, the first 50 that will sign up for unstressable.com this week will get a two-month free membership. Use the code TIME TO SLOW DOWN when you sign up to get your free gift. Remember, this gift is only for the first 50 who sign up. So do it fast. Go to unstressable.com, join our community, and learn how to lead a stress-free life. I cannot wait to see you there, because living stressed is not living. So, Bruce, you spoke about identity. So that idea, I love that idea of when a disaster hits, we lose our individual identities and we just all come together on a joint identity. But identity itself seems to be, in your work, one of the main factors that actually lead us, you know, that differentiates those who are resilient and those who are not. Yeah, and in really remarkable ways. I guess, you know, what I talked about earlier about trauma and a shattered sense of self, a shattered identity, what you discover is that when people are able to reconstruct their identity and, and recognise that the way they feel is shared by other people and isn't a source for shame, it's incredibly protective, it's incredibly healing for them. But these, there's just remarkable evidence of, of other research. One of the things that really swept me away actually was a piece of work looking at the early stages of the HIV AIDS epidemic mm. and, and what was discovered there was right at the outset truly no one knew what was going on in fact when it was first reported in the New York Times it was reported as a outbreak of cancer amongst young gay men no one knew what was going on and so what happened at the time was that the researchers were trying to journal and trying to identify patterns of behavior and a piece of work was conducted that took a lot of individuals who'd been first diagnosed with HIV and it tracked them and what was discovered was there was this extraordinary correlation those who were openly gay and told their families and friends 
it seemed to be protective of them in comparison to those who had told no one in their family and friend circle. Those who effectively lived in a shadow identity, who kept their real identities. Unbelievable. Uh, yeah. They were far more likely to fall into fully yeah. blown AIDS and they passed away more quickly. Astonishing. Yeah. Astonishing. Yeah. And so what you end up concluding is that when you see a... that. People owning their identity and feeling proud of it and feeling unashamed of it isn't just a nice benefit of modern day society. Actually, it's protective of people. People feeling like they can be their true selves is a really important part. So, you know, when you witness a Pride March, when you witness Black History Month, when you witness anyone seeking to try to be confident in their identities they've got, this isn't just a, a touch of vanity. It isn't like a blessing of, of modern capitalism. This is a really protective way for any of our well-being to be enhanced. Amazing. And, you know, in an interesting way, it's probably one of the reasons for the rise of the stress pandemic, the rise of why we challenge, we're so challenged with resilience is because so much of the recent history of humanity has been actually trying to remove our ability to mm. be proud of our identities. It's it's something quite shocking that, that this is not discussed enough, actually. Yeah. And look, you know, there's episodes around the world right now, you know, where communities are trying to, to express their identity. Right now, when we're talking these in Iran, there's a lot of Absolutely. movement of young women sort of trying to express their own identity. And, yeah. and, and actually, social media is, is proving to be enabling for them. But, you know, we're, we're surrounded with episodes like this, I think. Okay, so the third one, which, uh, you know, in your in your three pillars is your first one, I don't agree with as okay. much. Ah, oh, man, why did I say that? All right, so, so you speak about control. Hmm. And in my work, I say there is really no control. There is an attempt for control, but we will more often than not, not be fully in control. We're, you're never really in full control. So let's discuss the point of view of how control improves resilience first, because I think that's absolutely true. But I'd like to also get into the point where, how can we achieve control at yeah. all? I think that's really interesting for me. Okay, so it sounds to me like we're not fully disagreeing. Not at so, all. Just, know, just drama for the podcast. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so broadly, the more we feel like we've got agency over our situation, the more it elevates us out of a state of helplessness, and it seems to be one of the biggest predictors of our well-being. You know, Absolutely. The, the example I always think of is that, you know, quite often I chat to people who tell me, look, I'm in a stress crisis. I can't deal with my work. I've been, I've been sort of sleepless nights on a Sunday night. I, I need to quit my job. Quite often, the first thing anyone could say to them is talk me through your reality. And they'll often say, I open my calendar on a Sunday night. I've got back-to-back -back meetings all day. Then I'll get an email from my boss asking me to do something. When am I going to do it? Now, that absence of control, that sense that we're just overwhelmed, it's incapacitating for us. Absolutely. It, it, you know, it's no reason we feel breathless. We feel anxious. We feel like there's a, there's a, a rock lying on top of us. And so that absence of control is one of the biggest predictors of people not feeling resilient, people feeling like they can't cope with the situation. Mm. And look, you know, there's countless examples. Today, while I'm sitting here, there was a piece of research in the newspaper saying a third of young people feel like they have no control over their life whatsoever. Look, there's no surprise, you know, if your rent is high and going up, you feel like your bills are out of your control, you've no means of earning more money unless you're going to work 
yourself to the, to the ground, you've got no control in your life. But it's one of the biggest predictors of people feeling like they can't cope. So now, I guess what you're saying is control is to some extent an illusion that we're never going to have full agency over everything in our lives. Correct. And I, and I guess the debate is where the line sits. The more we can feel like we have got some leverage, some opportunity, the more we will benefit. Is it a grayscale? So a little more control will make us a little more resilient, will make, will give us a little bit better well-being, or is it one or zero? Yeah. Do we, do we have to reach a point of full control to, to actually you know, weather all of the challenges? Yeah, I mean, it seems like there's illusions along the way. I'll give you one grim example where some rats were put into water in what's sometimes called a Skinner box. These are sort of horrible experiments, but rats were immobilized and put into water. So they were given Botox injections to stop their body moving. The rats who were given a piece of wood to chew, their stress levels were significantly lower than the ones who were given nothing. And so what are we looking at there? We're looking at, I mean, firstly, a grim experiment. I used to be a protester against animal experiments as a kid. But you've got a grim experiment. The rat who's given some illusion of control, he's chewing on something. His stress levels are lower. So look, you know, let's go back to the workplace. A lot of us run around with chewing gums in our mouth, sort of trying to mitigate the stress experience that we've got. Another example of it is that you can take two groups of nurses, one group are told that they must do overtime. The other group are told they can do overtime if they want. They both end up doing the same amount of work, but the ones who chose to do the over overtime are significantly less stressed, the ones who were forced to do it. Mm. And it's an illusion there, isn't it, to some extent? It's an illusion. Both of them, their situation is the same. But, you know, it explains to me... Quite often I'll meet people who say, I work for my own business, I'll run my own startup. This idea that burnout happens is nonsense. I work 90 hours a week and I feel fine. Now, in that case, that illusion that they've chosen to do it seems to be self-protective a little bit. It seems to at least give them in the short term some grace that they can carry on doing it. Mm. I mean, it, if it's by choice, definitely you're much more capable of dealing with the challenge than if it isn't, for sure. But, mm. but I, th I think my, my view is that we can actually do so much while we're still out of control, out of full control. As well, you know, my attempt is to say to people, you will never reach full control. You never. There will always be something that's a little bit off tune. But that's not necessary for you to have the resilience and well-being and success that you need to achieve, even if some things are not exactly, uh, you know, within your control. As you rightly said, just a piece of wood, right? Just a little bit of agency changes a lot of things. It removes a lot of the stress. It makes you a lot more focused on what else can I do rather than I'm done. I can't do anything yeah. at all. But I think if you're de designing work, there was a, in the book, there's an episode that you might remember because it's only a couple of years ago about a United Airlines flight. Mm -hmm. And this United Airlines flight was hit a lot of people's social media feeds a couple of years ago because one, one Sunday night, the plane is on its way, I think, to Kentucky. Uh, at the last minute, the airline decides they need to put four more crew on the flight. I remember that, yeah. And so as a result, they need they to get four passengers. They drag a client out, yeah. and, and three people volunteered in return for $800. They volunteered to get off the flight. 
No one else would volunteer. So they chose someone apparently at random and they dragged this gentleman, I think a 68 year old gentleman, they dragged him down the flight. He ended up getting, if the Washington Post to be believed, a lot of money, you know, tens of millions of dollars. For yeah, but, but United lost me forever. Right. So I shall never fly right. United again. And what was discovered was that you had a cabin crew sitting there and they were given no control over the situation. So, you know, what you might imagine is that, okay, if the final cost to United was $100 million, that you might imagine, okay, let's give the autonomy to the crew that in this instance, maybe they're given $5,000 to deal with this. You can imagine a backwards auction where they're like, they start reading out a number, people who put their hands up at... $1,200 will, will suddenly get the prize because there will be someone there who will accept it. But they, they weren't given any authority to make decisions. And so the challenge was they were in this unenviable situation that the handbook said, this is what you're allowed to do. When that didn't work, they had no option. And I think a lot of us find ourselves in a situation that's comparable to that. Our jobs don't give us any leverage, don't give us the opportunity. In surveys, workers say, the vast majority of workers say, uh, about 78% of workers say, I'm not able to make any decisions in my job. So we've created a version of work where people feel like they've got no control. Absolutely, no control whatsoever, yeah. And that creates despair, basically. Mm. You're supposed to be able to achieve certain things and you're just not able to day after day after day. And I, you know, I think that really leads to despair. So let's take this a, a step further. So the three pillars are a little bit of control, a sense of identity and a community, a support group that I can rely on, right? This would make me more resilient. But if I'm in my current situation, so people listening to us right now, what can they do? What actions can they do right now to have more resilience in their life? The first thing that I did was thought about my own situation. <laughs> Did you? Right? That's yeah. interesting. Post-COVID, you know, I think a lot of us found ourselves feeling like, oh, you know, anytime you look at a friend's name in your phone, think, I've not seen them for three years, mm. for two years, you know, because COVID plus how long? Six months, yeah. you know. And so I started thinking far more intentionally about, okay, what am I going to do to see that group of friends? Yeah, because, who can I bring into my life? Right. Yeah. So, you know, I thought, okay, I'm going to organise a reunion of those friends that mm. meant so much to me. Mm. I'm going to make sure I make more effort to the group of friends that really matter to me, that I service them, and think about arranging things with them. So the first thing that I thought to myself about, it's very easy in moments of isolation or loneliness to think, I, I wish I felt stronger and my aim really was to try to think, what can I do to support the, the friends and connect with the friends that I've got? So I think, you know, that sense of connection is really vital. Absolutely. Um, first thing, anytime someone is saying to me they feel anxious and lacking in resilience, the first thing I, I look think about is, do they lack control over their situation? Yeah. So it might be... They feel overwhelmed in their job and they have they have no space to breathe. Or I'll be honest with you, you know, when I used to work for Twitter, we had a burnout epidemic. Now, we're going, I'm going back two or three years. We found ourselves, we'd just done a, a round of job cuts. The, the company wasn't doing well. But we were seeing about 40% employee turnover. 40% of the team had left year on year. Year wow. on year. And so, you know, we sat down and we started asking them, talk to me about why you're leaving. 
And what people said is they said, I feel I'm doing my job really badly. I feel like I, I never have a moment to breathe. I have back-to-back meetings all day. When I get home, you know, UK hours, people in the US are, are trying to put in meetings with me in the evenings. I feel that the emails that I have continue all weekend. And so, you know, if I glance at my phone at midday on Sunday, I've got 15 emails to answer. And so I feel like I need to start answering emails. And so our conclusion was, okay, you know, now I would say this makes people feel like they're out of control, like they they can't deal with their job. So our instinct was there was a senior management meeting where we would discuss exactly these things. Number two in the company, number three in the company, talking about these things. And we discussed, you know, people are leaving with no job to go to, actually. And so the number two in the company said, look, no one leaves Google with no job to go to. No one leaves Facebook with no job to go to. What's the reason? And look, we had the discussion. This environment that we've created where there's nonstop emails all weekend, where people feel they can never get a good job done, Maybe we're responsible for that by because we're not making decisions to stop that. So we agreed no weekend emails. It was like right to the very top of the organization. We agreed no weekend emails. And the interesting thing was that stuck for about a week and a half, two weeks. And then there was a weekend where maybe the revenue wasn't looking as good or the audience wasn't looking as good. And a very the number three in the company emailed and someone replied to him uh, saying, I think we've agreed we're not going to do weekend emails. That's amazing. So can we pick this up on Monday? And he was a bit annoyed. He was a bit frustrated. I think in the moment he was frustrated he wanted to do it. He also recognised he had agreed not to do this. And it was this really defining moment where, firstly, the culture was self-policing, that once a group of people, maybe who weren't the, the most senior, but the, the, the culture was self-policing. But in addition, it was the only way to push back against that lack of control, that, that sense of people feeling burnt out. So I think there's a lesson in that. I think all of us, while we might feel you know, the work cultures were in extreme, there's too many meetings, they've become silently, passively toxic. Mm. Um, I think we can all have a stake in trying to make them more welcoming and acceptable, really. I think that's an amazing example, to be honest. I think that's exactly what it's all about. And I, I hope that a lot of people understand that sooner or later, you know, whatever it is, we can have that little bit of sense of agency. We mm. can actually make a difference. Bruce, I always want to close with the same question, but I'll ask it to you differently. So I always ask, what's your secret for happiness? But I want to ask you, what's your secret for happiness at work? For me, the whole time through my working career, the secret, I would say I'd had a good day when I'd laughed with other people. Laughed? That's yeah, absolutely. So, so that's the most unexpected but super answer. What do you um, mean? So, you know, whether it was the people that I casually sat next to, and, you know, various times I've sat next to the teams I work with, or for a long time when I was at Twitter, I didn't really work with teams. I sort of, you know, I, I sat just with the woman who ran the office, the woman who, who was one of our recruiters. The, I sat with those group of people. But for me, it was the gaps between the work. It was the moments of connection that defined the job. If I went home and I thought, I've laughed 12 times today, it was so enriching for me. It just, it gave me, it helped mitigate any of the stresses along the way. 
And there's a really important lesson for me in that. It's like, I thought, okay, this is a really interesting thing because I've been in environments where in the past, the bosses have said, things aren't going well. Make sure you're not seen laughing. In fact, you see it in... No new- way. Yeah, yeah. But you see it in news stories actually right now. You see it quite often in, in sports stories in the UK or you see it in... Um, I saw it in coverage of politics where the night of the, the last general election, one politician was seen laughing and her party had just done really badly. And it, I think you, it's a fundamental misunderstanding of the role that laughter provides in our life. Laughter is often what we do when we feel stressed, but we feel, you ask firefighters, they'll say we, we laugh all the time, but we are, often laugh to deal with really difficult situations. The stress, you know, yeah. we, we sort of find that laughter is a self. It helps heal us when these difficult times. But more than anything, we only laugh with people we like. We only laugh with people we trust. Mm-hmm. And as soon as you sort of start understanding these things, you know, laughter, my old boss who said, now's not the time to be seen laughing. You might say, actually, at difficult times, that is the time to, to reach inside That's and exactly find laughter. That's exactly the time to see, um, to see laughing. Laughter's contagious. Laughter signals safety. There was, I chatted to a brilliant British psychologist. She said, if you ever watch dogs playing in the park and dogs do something which is a literal downward dog, if you've ever done yoga, mm. they, they put their two front paws down and they lean into yeah. it. And it signals to other dogs that while I might be about to bite your tail or might be about to jump on top of you, we're just playing here. This is all safe. So what I'm doing now, don't attack me. This is just play. We don't know each other, but it's really interesting. It's it's this little signal to them. And laughter kind of does the same, she says. Laughter signals that we're safe here. We're in a protected environment here. We're, We're all on the same side. And so... I guess I never understood at the time the importance of laughter. But for me, laughter was the way that I was able to say, actually, today was a good day. Today was powerful. And that became my obsession in thinking, okay, right, this team doesn't seem to be laughing anymore. Okay, I've walked past that team and everyone, I think because noticing that a team isn't laughing shows you that there's no trust it shows you that there's no connection. It shows you that they maybe they don't like each other because they've not found time to like each other. So immediately it becomes, in my head it became, what is the way that I can enable that team to get into a more trusting environment? So that was it for me. Like, And actually the truth of it is, Mo, I think most of us laughed less during the pandemic than we did because we weren't around people. We, we, you know, we laugh less on... Google Hangouts on Teams calls. Oh, yeah, we, we do. Yeah, in it's very life. unnatural for and us. And so yeah. finding a way to getting into a room where you're laughing with people again, probably, you know, is right to the heart of what we've talked about today. Best business advice ever. Honestly, <laughs> I have to say, and also a very, very powerful advice on the individual level. I mean, it's not just work. Laughter is really the answer to a lot of, a lot of stress, a lot of the topics that we take so seriously, sometimes just laughing about them before you address them just makes life a lot easier. Always a pleasure. Always a pleasure. Bruce, thank you so much for coming and for sharing so much. By the way, I asked Bruce to share so many examples because the book is so full of so many more. So don't think for yourself that you've read 
probably we scratched the surface of, I think, like three chapters. That's all we covered so far. It's such an interesting read and such an interesting take on the topic of uh, resilience. But as you may have seen, I think what I love most about Bruce's approach is, yes, yes, we will come to solving the problems, right? We will come to work on the real issues. That's fine. But your resilience comes from things that are outside that, things that you need to work on yourself. You're having a sense of control, influencing whatever it is that you can influence, having a sense of identity and being proud of that identity, despite what the world is trying to tell you, and having that community of people that you love and connect to. The idea of of finishing on the topic of laughter at work. Who talks about laughter at work when times are tough? Who talks about laughter at uh, your family dinner when times are tough? Who talks about laughter when you're beating up your boyfriend? Think about it. Honestly, sometimes the things that we do don't have to address our challenges head on. They may need to address our approach to ourselves and the world around us. And I think to me, this is gold. This is pure wisdom. I hope you enjoyed this as much as I did. I hope you will uh, apply some of it in your life. We are going through times where we need resilience, but not as individuals. We need resilience as a community that works together, and we need resilience to support each other so that we don't fall into despair. If you've liked this, share it with others. Do the five stars thingy. If you're on YouTube, like and subscribe and switch the notification button and do whatever it is that you guys do on social media, as long as you listen to a few more of those episodes, because I really truly believe that an opportunity to slow down for an hour a week and reflect on a topic that we don't often think about is invaluable. It doesn't really matter how busy you are this week. There is always, always a little bit of time to slow down. I love you all for listening and I will see you next time.